thoughts, explore principles and ideals about our philosophy of ministry. Now, I'm sure many of us are looking forward to hearing Pastor tonight. I'm looking forward to it also, but I'd like to give some background information as to why these things are being talked about right now. Earlier this year, uh, the Missions Committee asked Pastor Reed to begin examining uh, these issues of philosophy once a month on Wednesday nights. And we started in June, and it was a very powerful evening. In fact, the elders asked um, Pastor Reed to move this series to Sunday night. So here we are. Now back in June, I began that evening by citing some events uh, that led us to these discussions. And when we moved the series to now, the elders still wanted me to open up this evening. And so that's why I'm here. And some of what I'm going to say is a bit of a repeat if you were there uh, back in June, but I also have some new information. What's all this talk about philosophy of ministry, uh, philosophy of missions, discipleship? That's a buzzword right now. The why behind what we do. I suppose every church probably has a philosophy about its work in ministry, whether it knows it or not, or whether it's an official statement or not. So I think it's good for a church to be examining and contemplating the reasons behind what the church is doing. Now, there are several causes as to why your elders are talking about this now. And one of them has to do with our missions program. About eight years ago or so, I became the chairing elder of our missions committee. And I was warned when I took that position that uh, missions was a tough subject and I might run into a few bumps. And it didn't take me long to realize that there were people on that committee that would like to explore and examine the principles and ideologies of modern missions. So, on May 22nd of 2012, I formed a subcommittee and I called it the Missions Philosophy Committee. And this committee was charged with the task to create a missional or philosophical statement by which our missions program would adhere. And it wasn't until six years later that the, the philosophy committee finally submitted something to the missions committee. And I would like to read the resolution that was passed that night in the missions committee. And this uh, appears in our minutes here on November 27th, 2018. Missions Philosophy Committee presented a resolution that our Lebanon church make ministries of church planting, both here and abroad, and those that directly support the need of such endeavors, such as seminaries, Bible translation, and administration for such efforts, be the primary focus of prayer and financial support, and that we recommend to the Board of Elders that a strategy be established and implemented to prioritize church planting both here and abroad. So that was the resolution the Missions Committee passed, and we submitted that to the elders for their consideration the next month. So, 
December 4th, this resolution was passed by the elders. I'm only going to read two resolutions. This is the second one, but I think it's important. This is what the elders decided. Whereas, it seems that the primary biblical pattern for foreign and international missions is the church sending envoys to duplicate the church, and whereas the current reality of full-time missions and related ministries is a potpourri of methods, activities, and ideologies, and whereas in the midst of this diversity there are some endeavors more worthy than others, therefore be it resolved that the Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church make ministries of church planting both here and abroad and those that directly support the need of such endeavors, such as seminaries, Bible translating, and administration for such efforts, be the primary and prioritized focus of prayer and financial support. That was December, a year ago. The elders also went on to the denominational level. In February of this year, it was decided to petition the BFC conference in April. And we as a church, the elders, requested that the BFC look favorably upon efforts to establish foreign BFC church plans. That petition was successful. And in July, we as a church made a very exciting move. Pastor Dan Estrada is an individual with whom I am very impressed. He and his family serve with the Yugoslavian Evangelistic Society in Gina, Romania, and they are Romanian nationals. Our church here in Lebanon supports them financially, and he is on our Wednesday night prayer sheet every week. Dan is a professor at the Timotheus Biblical University in Romania, and that trains future pastors and equips others for ministry. Pastor Estrada is very committed to the scriptures and very sensitive to holding fast to sound doctrine. In addition to his teaching responsibilities at the college, Dan was pastoring a church. Earlier this year, he was forced to step away from this work because of a doctrinal dispute. I really appreciate his unwavering steadfastness towards God's word. And he is hopeful that there will be a reconciliation between the church and his position in the future. But for now, he is ministering in another church and preaching on a regular basis. Now, being aware of all these things, the elders and the missions committee approached Pastor Estrada on July 22nd. He was here in the U.S. with his family preparing to drop off his daughter for college. Adora is going to Cedarville. And while he was here, we met with him and we picked his brain a little bit about foreign missions and ultimately asked him if he thought a Bible Fellowship Church would be beneficial to the country of Romania. He felt a BFC presence would be a benefit. Then we asked him if he would consider taking the first steps to establishing a Bible Fellowship Church in Romania. 
Pastor Dan was very willing to consider joining this endeavor, even making a comment in that meeting that he would be willing to relocate if that was necessary. Of course, his plate is very full already. He was not sure how much time he would be able to commit, knowing that this process is a huge attempt. But nonetheless, he is interested. A couple weeks later, he and his whole family joined us for a mission emphasis on August 7th. Um, we didn't publicly speak about this at that mission's emphasis, but I was able to talk with him and his family about this new prospect uh, that evening. And his family was very excited about the possibility of planning a BFC church. In fact, um, I remember Anna, his wife, being very encouraged about this new vision. Now, they returned to Romania later um, in August, but on September 2nd, Labor Day, I received this email from Pastor Dan, and I'd like to read this email to you. Dear brethren, happy Labor Day. We appreciate very much our interaction regarding the possibility of extending the BFC to Eastern Europe. Although there is much to discuss and decide between now and then, we would like to start on translating the articles of faith, the biblical principles for living, and the principles of order. To facilitate this and speed up things, I was wondering if we could have the faith in order in word format. It would make things easier for us. And he makes a, a couple more requests, and he ends by saying, Anna is planning on starting on this soon and I will be editing as I can. Thanks and have a great week, Dan. So he's jumping right into this, and I was very excited and very encouraged to get this email from Pastor Dan. Of course, as Dan mentions in the email, we're just in the beginning stages, and who knows what God has planned. So keep this in your prayers as you pray for the church. Um, ask for God's will to be done here. Ask for his leading. Ask for his direction as we really go into some uncharted territory here in the um, months and years ahead. So to sum up, uh, before Pastor comes here, what, why, this why this push for church planting? What are these ideals? What are these principles this philosophy that we keep referring to. Well, that's one of the reasons for this new series. Uh, we want to talk about where all this is coming from. And Pastor has graciously volunteered to begin breaking these things down in orderly fashion. So I appreciate very much the work he has put into this. And Pastor, um, thank you for this series. We, uh, we're going to be down front because we want this to be a little more informal and uh, do a little question and answer time uh, in these evenings, although we probably won't have much of that tonight, for tonight is kind of an introduction, uh, but we'll get to some uh, material. Uh, just to, to fill in a little bit about what um, uh, 
Brother Eric was sharing with us tonight. Uh, right now, uh, we are not actively engaged in planting Bible fellowship churches overseas. Uh, historically, it's not been our uh, goal or methodology uh, to plant Bible fellowship churches outside of the United States. Now, recently, we have had the opportunity uh, to have churches in Mexico, uh, Merida in uh, particular, uh, which is a church that has served us extremely well in that uh, many of our Hispanic uh, pastors that are pastoring our Hispanic works here in the United States have come out of the Merida Church, uh, for they are very much in keeping with our doctrine, form of government, etc., and they have affiliated with us and become a Bible Fellowship Church. It's been our desire to see Bible Fellowship Churches be planted in other places around the world and not just in the United States. We brought the request to conference, as was mentioned, of which there was an awful lot of discussion at conference. One was about the need to do so, and the second was more about the uh, capability of doing so. It sounded like a big undertaking. Is that something that we can do? Well, other denominations certainly have done it, and I argued uh, as well as Eric and Jack, they were all present, and we all participated in the, this presentation at annual conference, and uh, we uh, thought that indeed it could be done, of which conference then said, well, they would look into it. They uh, gave the responsibility to the executive board of the Bio Fellowship Church uh, to uh, analyze the situation and left us with a challenge. If you want to do it, then do it. Uh, so uh, we said, all right, we'll do it. And uh, we came home and strategized at a uh, meeting uh, at the board level. Uh, we had a retreat for a weekend, and a lot of it was devoted to missions and how are we going to achieve this purpose. And uh, Dan Estrada was identified as an individual that we thought uh, could do this. Uh, he is well-trained. Uh, he is a graduate of biblical seminary, uh, has his doctorate from Westminster Seminary, uh, is very familiar with the Bible Fellowship Church, has been here for 13 years, uh, has been a Bible Fellowship Church missionary, and um, has taken a stand for the things that we believe in in Romania. And there are no Reformed churches in Romania. And uh, so we have the opportunity of being able to bring the Word of God to them in a uh, unique and what we believe to be a biblical way. And uh, so we are very excited about this work that uh, we are able to do, and it seems as though God is in it. Uh, God is leading. God is blessing. So tonight we're going to be starting talking about missions, and we're going to be asking some questions that are not often asked publicly, and there are going to be some questions that might make us a bit uncomfortable and there are going to be questions that are sometimes emotionally charged. For usually, missions and discipleship get a pass. They are sacred cows, if you will. 
Uh, it's kind of mind-boggling to many to say, why wouldn't we be behind 100% anything that's done of the moniker of missions? As long as somehow somebody thinks it's missions, why shouldn't we be totally on board and uh, get behind it? Some people are going to eat this up. Uh, some are going to hate what we're doing as we talk about these things, so they're just not interested in these subjects, but I think they're going to be proved to be very practical. Uh, we want to be considering why it is that we do what we do as a church. What influences and governs those decisions? How is the life of the church, missions, and discipleship intertwined? The answers are going to be perhaps shocking, but they should not be. We begin by looking at what I have often referred to as a post-Christian era. And uh, I'm not going to unpack that tonight, but say that beyond being in a post-Christian era, we are also in a post-church uh, era. The church has lost its significance in society. It has lost its respect. Uh, the church is not held with the same degree of veneration as it once was. Uh, we can all remember, some of us can remember the blue laws uh, of which uh, stores were closed on Sundays and uh, how baseball games were not held on Sundays uh, and the church was respected. And if you went out for a sports team, you were not expected to practice on a Wednesday night because it was prayer meeting. Those days are long gone. Uh, those uh, aspects of the life of the church no longer exist in, in our society. But what concerns me is that the church is also rapidly losing its significance in the Christian worldview as well. Evangelical Christians are losing sight of the importance of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the value of being a part of a church is being questioned. It starts with membership. Why would anyone want to be a member of a church? I was very pleased. I just came directly from here from a membership class where we had 20 people. Uh, so I'm very thankful uh, that people are thinking about, about membership. But, but that's not common. It has been moved into uh, a situation of why be active? Why be involved in the life of the church? Uh, so attendance has certainly decreased in the evangelical world uh, as uh, we think about church life. And it has moved to the question of support. Why would we want to give money to the church? And it is viewed as there are many more worthwhile and valuable ministries that we could be given to. And we think of many parachurch organizations. And people see that as being a better way of using their money to be able to be involved in these parachurch organizations that are going to be ministering in ways that the church does not. So the value of ministering within and under the direction of the church is being lost, even in missions. In the thinking of many Christians, the only value of missionary, of a value of a missionary being connected with a church is for fundraising. 
And if they are spiritual, they'll also say, as a means of gaining prayer support. But this mindset resulted in the following. That is, if a person wants to be involved in missions, the time that they engage with the church is when they are in need of funds. Uh, rarely do they come to the church and say, I'm thinking about being involved in missions. What do you think about that? What do you think about where I should serve? What do you think about the organization I should go with, etc., etc.? <clears throat> it's not to seek counsel. It's not to seek advice. Or um, to ask the question, how does this view that I have fit in with the life and goals and vision and ministry of the church? Believe it or not, all of this has relevance for discipleship. For discipleship. For it may seem odd to you, I would hope it does, that we have missionaries all around the world, and yet they are not planting or establishing Bible fellowship churches. So, what are they doing? What are they doing? And the answer would be that they are making disciples. So the first thing that I want to do tonight is talk about the relationship of discipleship making to the church. When most people think about discipleship, they think of a parachurch organizational model. When most people think about discipleship, what comes to mind for them are campus ministries or those that are ministering to people in the armed forces. There are many uh, parachurch organizations on college campuses and they would view their work as being primarily of discipling believers. One church parachurch organization refers to themselves as disciple makers. That is what they do. That process has become normative in most Christians' thinking when they think about discipleship. For many young people on a college campus, their relationship to that particular organization replaces their relationship to a particular church. Uh, a lot of college students don't go to church when they are in college. They go to their small group meeting. Uh, they meet with the officers in their parachurch organization. They have Bible studies on their floor. They do many wonderful and good things that have nothing to do with any particular church and don't particularly see uh, any difficulty with that or any value in attending church. I'm not surprised when parachurch ministries minimize the uh, role of the church in discipleship. My purpose tonight is not to berate parachurch organizations. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm thankful for the many organizations that are at work in college campuses and uh, on uh, the uh, working with our armed forces. So I'm not here to berate parachurch organizations. My desire is to restore the biblical idea of church and discipleship. Christ said, I will build my church. 
Secondly, most Christians don't understand what the church is all about. It's assumed that they do, but they really don't. This results in such a questions as follows. Many times when people walk through this door, they will say something to me such as, does your church have a discipleship program? Does your church have a discipleship program? And more significantly, why doesn't your church have a discipleship program? Now, if you just think about that question for a moment, it's speaking of a specific methodology. More importantly, a methodology that does not compare with a proper understanding of the scriptures. What they are not asking of discipleship programs is the most significant verse of scripture about discipleship that we can find. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. The classic portion of scripture about making disciples. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, this is Jesus meeting with his disciples immediately after his resurrection, before his ascension. This is the resurrected Lord. Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. This is understood as the Great Commission. This is that command of the scriptures to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. All of those great organizations turn to this passage of scripture and say, this is the work that we're about to do. One of the aspects that I find fascinating is verse 19, where it says, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That a crucial element of discipleship making by Jesus' own command is to baptize. To baptize individuals. All right? Most discipleship programs, of you, as you think of them, do not baptize individuals. You understand that the vast majority of Bible Fellowship Church missionaries do not baptize converts. They are not involved in a work. They are not involved in a ministry that ends up with people being baptized. That should create a red flag in our estimation. That should make us sit up and take notice 
that one of the great biblical commands of the scripture is that in baptizing individuals, you are making followers. We use the terminology, follow the Lord in baptism. Why is baptism significant? Answer, baptism is significant for it is that which identifies an individual with a particular community of believers. It is through baptism that individuals are united to something that is greater than themselves. In baptism, it is a public declaration of faith, of following the Lord Jesus Christ, and are brought into a fellowship with a community of believers, starting with the individual that is baptizing them, and then that community of believers that that individual is baptizing them represents for the whole. And so we find out in the New Testament that one of the great issues for the early church was that Simon Peter was baptizing Gentiles that were being brought into the church. And it created a great turmoil for in being baptized, they were to be associated with the people of God. And in Acts chapter 15, you have that great Jerusalem council. And the whole issue is, how can we reject individuals that have been baptized by the Holy Spirit? How can we reject individuals that God has accepted? But baptism is the way of bringing individuals into a community, into a relationship, and ultimately into a church. That's why we require baptism for church membership. So what many discipleship programs fail in doing is bring people into a community, bring people into a church in which they are going to be continued to be discipled for the rest of their lives. For we then have to ask the question, what should a, quote, discipleship program, end quote, cover? What kind of issues, what kind of subjects, what kind of material ought you have in a discipleship program that may be six weeks, maybe six months, maybe a year? What do you want to cover? Notice what the Word of God says, verse 19. Go therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you. Not just an isolated couple classes on prayer, couple classes on witnessing, a couple of classes on uh, perhaps uh, fellowship or uh, what, what have you, but we're to be teaching the whole counsel of God. So it's not just a matter of six weeks. It's not a matter of six months. It's not a matter of years, but it's a matter of a life. We are being discipled our entire lives. We are being developed. The purpose that God has for us is to pass on the faith from one generation to the next. 
That is the primary responsibility of the church. That's what we are about. Next week I'm going to talk from, from 2 Timothy, where Timothy is told that uh, he is to teach so that they can teach others who will then teach others. It's the passing on of the faith. That is what the church is about. The church is about discipleship. It's about passing on the faith from one generation to the next. Equipping them and enabling them to be mature followers of Christ, using their gifts to build his church and his kingdom. So 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So it's a matter of passing the word of God on from one generation to the next. The church is the biblical entity to make those disciples. How can we best do that according to the scriptures? Well, there's a lot of selective reading and misreading of the New Testament. For example, thanks to the parachurch model of discipleship, discipleship is viewed as being one-on-one. That is the most effective way of ministering to individuals by the modern demonstration of discipleship. It's one-on-one mentorship is discipleship. Listen to the words of 2 Timothy. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. What you heard from me along with many others. There are numerous books out today that are against preaching and saying that it is impossible to disciple through preaching. It is impossible to be discipling in a large group setting. It must be one-on-one or it's going to fail. It's striking to me that in 2 Timothy, the very next chapter talks about the significance and importance of preaching. Preach the word. Be diligent in season, out of season. That discipleship is done in a large group setting. That doesn't mean there isn't a place for one-on-one discipleship. I'm not saying that. But we need to understand the importance of large group discipleship, of passing on the faith from, from one generation to the next. If you look at the life of Jesus, the best that we can see is one on 12 discipleship. Jesus discipling his disciples together, not taking them off individually, one by one, sitting down with them and spending time with them, but uh, discipling them as a whole. Now, he does have an inner circle of three, of which he spends an inordinate amount of time with them, and then the 12. But it isn't just the 12. It's also 
the multitude. It's all of those that are gathering that have heard the Sermon on the Mount. That is not just the 12. Remember that Jesus sends out the 72, two by two, to minister. Where did those 72 come from? How were those 72 discipled? How were those 72 raised up? They came from the multitudes. They came from the crowds. They came from those who heard the word of God and saw his miracles performed. So there certainly is a place for large group discipleship. There's also a place for small group. There's also a place for individual uh, responsibility. And we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about how that looks in the life of our own church. One of the great pictures of discipleship in the scriptures is that of a family. Uh, That families are supposed to be passing on the truth from one generation to the next. And the church... is to be viewed as a family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God. Corporately, we are to be a family. We are to have a relationship to one another. A huge part of discipleship is learning to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and loving one another. And we have all the one another passages in Scripture. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I dealt with the one another passages. You can't practice one another passages one-on-one. You can't develop community one-on-one. You can't obey the Scriptures one-on-one. It requires that you are in a relationship to each other. So much of what Jesus taught his disciples was in their interaction with each other. Remember how they they would quarrel, how they would want preeminence over each other, how they would refuse to submit to each other. So much of what Jesus teaches his disciples is how to relate to each other. And as a result of this one-on-one discipleship, one of the outcomes of it is that there is a lack of community and there isn't a sense of a need for community. Why do I need to go to church? Why do I need to be involved in other people's lives? Why can't I just stay home and, and watch TV or listen to something on the Internet? Why do I need to be involved in anybody else's life? For that's not how they've been discipled. That's not what they've been taught to do. That's not what the responsibility is to be. So Jesus said, I will build my church. Again, I'm not here to berate uh, parachurch organizations, but they're not found in the Bible. Look them up. Do a concordance study. They're not there. 
What is there is the church. That is what God intends for the discipleship to be done. Again, I'm not saying that they're sinful. I'm not berating them, but I'm saying that if that's all that it is, and it doesn't funnel people into a church, then people are being spiritually damaged and harmed as a result. So what we want to be demonstrating is the importance of the church and being discipled in the church. We have a great deal of intentionality in this church of passing the truth from one generation to the next. People say, do you have a discipleship program? (laughs) It's all about discipleship. It's all about passing the truth from one generation to another. It's why we don't have a children's church. Not that there's particularly anything wrong with a children's church. It's valuable to have uh, instruction at the level of the child, to have the word taught at a third grade level for a third grader. But that's why we have the, the entire program of the church. That's why we have a Sunday school. That's why during Wednesday night we have a children's program. Yes, it's important that they be instructed uh, from the word of God at their level. It's also important that they sit next to mom and dad and hear the word of God and see the example and to understand that what they believe is what their parents believe. And it's passed on from generation to generation. So we don't have a children's church. Not because we don't have enough people to man it. Not because we never thought about it. But we think that it's valuable for children to be in the church. Service. And to be instructed right along with their parents. And be able to go home and ask their parents questions. Like, what did that mean when a person was baptized? Why do they take communion? Why can't I take it? And all of those questions that arise are, are extremely important. We had teenagers up here that took the offering on a Sunday night. That is intentional. We have a mentorship program. We had the opportunity to, to work with two young men from our congregation who want to be pastors and gave them personal instruction, gave them opportunities for service, spent a lot of time with them one-on-one, and gave them corporate opportunities. That's all a part of discipleship. That's all a part of passing the truth on from one generation to the next. Never lose sight. If you're teaching Sunday school, that's what you're doing. That's what it's all about. That's what the church is. We are discipleship makers. And we have failed if we don't see the truth passed from one generation to the next. I'm glad for every gray-haired person that's here tonight. I'm even glad for those who don't have hair that are here tonight. But I'm delighted with the children that are sitting here tonight. And the teens. For that's what the church is. I get so excited when I see older people talking to younger people. Younger people talk to older people. I walked into church this morning. Jack and Seth Herb were at the doors and opened the doors for me. 
That's instruction. That's what learning about service, learning about appreciation for the elders. You see, for another great failure, many times, not always, of one-on-one discipleship is it's done by peers. And the scripture says that the older is supposed to teach the younger. It's this generational aspect of developing appreciation for the elderly. And so what happens as kids get out of college? They can't even worship with the elderly people. They have to have their own church. They have to have a generational church in which everything is done the way in which they want it done. And it's not just the young people. Sometimes it's the elderly that they want a generational church and want it done their way. And I'm saying the church meets the generations. It's the giving and the taking. It's the appreciation of not always having it our way, not always doing what we enjoy, what we like, what best suits our desires, but what is ultimately going to accomplish the purpose of achieving the kingdom and glory of God. This ultimate goal of passing the truth from one generation to the next. It is our belief that the God-ordained means of doing that is the church. And so we petitioned annual conference that we would be planting churches, not just making disciples that fall off into who knows where, doing what, but we are funding them into a church where they'll be discipled forever, and they're going to be growing. Now, there's so much more that I can talk about in terms of specifics, and I will in the weeks that lie ahead, but that's kind of the the basis of of where we're going and uh, what we're thinking about. Next week, we're going to be in 2 Timothy. You can read over that if you want uh, to uh, better familiarize yourself with that section, but I'm going to be talking about it in uh, much greater detail and giving you opportunities for question, answer, input. Let's pray. Almighty God, I just pray that you would help us. Uh, May this uh, series be valuable. Uh, May we see the uh, role of the church. May we understand what we are about of worshiping you and, and passing the truth on from generation to generation. We thank you for the generational church that we have. Grandparents, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren worshiping together. And we pray for the future of the church, that these grandchildren and great-grandchildren will grow up to be the leaders, grow up to be the spiritual giants that are going to continue the work and pass the word of God on to the next generation and the next until the Lord comes. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.